Welcome, everyone, to the fifth episode of That's So Second Millennium. This is Bill Schmidt with my colleague, co-host, and expert, uh, Paul Giesing. An expert. And like to... <laughs> well, uh, I may be an expert in uh, talking, but you're an expert in knowing. So I think that the, that, the, that gives you extra credentials. Uh, Basically, what I'd like to do first, Paul, after listening to uh, episode four, is to make sure that I'm summing up correctly in my own head some of the good points you were making. You were taking us on a, a journey through second and third millennium perspectives on physics, where we are now uh, discovering, of course, much more complexity, plus uh, remarkable uh, propensities for the rules of physics to actually change or even evolve as we climb that ladder toward more diverse and complex particles and phenomena. So uh, uh, as I noted in my question then that you quoted, uh, this journey kind of struck me first as a bit scary because it seems to be pointing toward randomness, uh, toward a life summed up by uh, the Bohemian Rhapsody lyrics from Queen. Nothing really matters. Anyone can see. Nothing really matters to me. That that had me a little bit scared about the direction of uh, modern physics. But you also uh, made the point in the last episode that things aren't as scary as we might think. That you you, you struck a few notes of real hope for people of faith who uh, who are hoping to retain at least a, a vision of the universe that includes some meaning, some meaningful constant and not just randomness. And uh, I wanted to see if my uh, understanding of that duality of randomness and hope was uh, taking me at least in the in the right direction. Could you uh, expound a little bit more on the points you were making there? Yeah, though, so, so the point I was trying to make about um, the sort of evolution of the laws of physics, it's not so, so when we think of evolution on Earth, you know, in, in terms of life, right? So Darwinian evolution. So what, what's, what's the evidence for that? I mean, the, the most concrete evidence for that is that we see fossils in different strata that were laid down in different ages, and we have radiometric dating to assure us of that. We have the sort of common sense laws of stratigraphy to assure us of that, you know, Nicholas Steno, who I'd love to spend a podcast talking about Nicholas Steno and his, you know, role and position in the history of science. But uh -huh. so there's, so there's a succession of species, right? That's, that's basically, it is a sort of derived observe, but it is a, it, that's an observation. We do need mm -hmm. a few differences to get to that point, but we see, okay, here are Cambrian strata. They are older than Ordovician strata. They have these kind of trilobites in them. And then we get to the Ordovician strata, and some of them continue, and some of them have gone. A lot of them, uh -huh. most of them, nearly all have gone. Um, and then eventually, you know, we don't see trilobites anymore, but we see other things. We see other kinds of arthropods, you know, all the other sea creatures that we see. And we conclude, you know, then the, the inference is that we have evolution that you know somehow these species are changing from one into another because we seem to see at least something that approaches you know this changed it got bigger this changed 
it became a different shape. This changed. It added armor plating. This changed. It added bigger teeth. Whatever the yeah. changes may be. Um, and that's a succession. That's, you know, the old ones are dead. They're gone. They're no longer with us. That's not the evolution, the kind of evolution we're talking about with physical laws. So in ah. this case, we're talking about layering. We have all of the old laws, and then what we find is that when you put a certain number of particles obeying those low-level old laws together, you get a composite entity that obeys new laws. Right. The old laws are still in place. Nothing has happened. In fact, for the new laws to, to work, the old laws must continue working exactly the way they were. I mean, there are people who speculate. So, so what would what would evolution in the Darwinian sense of a um, and in this very loose Darwinian sense, I put for the just that the you know old laws go away and new laws come in their place. What would that even look like? Well, there are people who speculate. For example, that maybe the gravitational constant changes with time. You know, as the universe has gotten older, the gravitational constant has changed with time. You could call that an evolution. It's no longer the old gravitational constant, it's a new gravitational constant, although it's still the inverse square law, so really that would not be a very big change. But in some right. sense, you could say that's an old physical law changing to a new physical law. But that's not what happens. In, turn, in the, the term, so subatomic particles, you know, build up atoms, and then all of a sudden we have laws of chemistry. You know, when we just have a plasma of electrons and protons and neutrons, we don't have the laws of chemistry that, you know, allow sodium and chloride to exchange an electron and uh, become this ionic crystal. That sort of thing can't happen at that layer, you know, at that, at that earlier lower level of complexity when you just have the individual subatomic particles flying around. But once we, once we collect those into these composite entities, then we have this whole, you know, we have, we have this brand new layer of complexity. And then those, those can, you know, once, those, once we have these atoms and we have chemistry, we have, you know, we have, the, we have the creation of molecules, we have the creation of crystals, then we can start doing more complicated things whether geological right. things or biological things. Obviously, that's, that's, you know, contains in itself several additional layers of complexity. We build, you know, we build prokaryotic cells, cells that don't have a nucleus. Then we build eukaryotic cells that have nucleus and all these little organelles that do specialized things inside the cell. Then we have multicellular organisms and all, on, 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 on all the way up. So many, many, you know, layers of complexity, none of which have you know, thrown out the old, you know, everything that goes on in a prokaryotic cell can, at least in principle, um, often does, I think, go on in a, um, in, in a eukaryotic cell, you know, so RNA is being, I don't know, DNA is being spliced, I guess RNA, gosh, this is ex exposing my <laughs> ignorance, things I've forgotten since high school, um, oh, that's the RNA, <laughs> carrying information <laughs> somewhere so the proteins can be made, but in, in a eukaryotic cell, it's just being done in these more specialized places. Right. But so, that's, so that's the kind of evolution that we're talking about, um, and that there's, a, there's an important distinction to be made there that apparently, that, you know, I like, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't make that clear at all, did I? Um, that word well, evolution is, is a dangerous... Well, I mean, it's, it's just... <laughs> if you read... If you read the Aeneid, did you take Latin in school, Bill? 
I'll ask no, but I might have I might have read at least the Cliff Cliff's Notes versions of the Aeneid. Go on. Okay. Well, the problem is is that we need we need we need you to read it in Latin for this illusion to make sense. Well, let let me try to let me try to do it as best I can for you and the listenership. I'm sure the vast majority of which has also not taken Latin or tried to read the Aeneid. Um, it turns out Virgil uses the Latin word or or derived forms of the Latin word uh, Volvo, Volvera, I turn to turn. Oh, right. All the time. <laughs> he uses oh. it for almost every verb of motion or process or anything. <laughs> so And so the word evolution, which comes from that, um, it's not, I don't think it's a real coincidence that it's a word that is so, it's very flexible in meaning, and therefore it is, it's ambiguous in meaning. And this is one of yeah. those sort of things where it can get us in trouble. All right. Well, that allays a large part of the uh, fear that uh, I felt um, from that uh, from that directional uh, suggestion that that you made. Now, um, you were hopeful also that uh, hy- uh, hylomorphism, which which you discussed, um, I think, in episode three, uh, still has some relevance. That uh, that struck me as a good thing because. It's it's that uh, kind of perspective of matter and form that I think of as allowing us to hold on to the idea of transubstantiation as a situation where the accidents of the form remain the same, whereas the substance of the Eucharistic host is really changed. And so I was wanting to see if I was understanding that aspect of hopefulness correctly i mean that <clears throat> that doctrine is several stages removed from i mean i guess i i don't necessarily see the connection there myself no. um what what i was trying to talk about was was so you know <laughs> it would take me some work to get from one point to the other to, to do the philosophy there I mean, certainly, certainly the idea that we haven't, you know, we, we don't confront modern science and say, well, you know what, hylomorphism doesn't work at all, and we're going to have to, you know, throw out all of this philosophical language. There's always, you know, at least conceivably the possibility that, well, we were able to interpret Christianity in terms of this paradigm, and this paradigm is wrong. Maybe we can't interpret Christianity in terms of whatever new paradigm will have to take its place. Yeah, that would be really scary to me. Yeah, and 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 it is true uh, that that doesn't seem to be the situation at all from this perspective. Okay, I think I was jumping to a conclusion there, or to an oversimplification at least. Uh, now you were also hopeful uh, that third millennium understandings of physics still have elements that will resonate with people of faith. You kind of closed the episode on this point um, that uh, that. People of faith uh, still have lots to draw upon uh, uh, to draw faith from modern physics, even though a lot of folks today would say that science and religion are completely incompatible. Uh, uh, could you uh, expand a little bit on that? I bet a lot of the future uh, discussions in this podcast will uh, go into that subject, but care to give any kind of basic uh, example of why people of faith should be hopeful uh, regarding uh, new understandings of physics? Well, it's that, I mean, 
you know, on a basic level, there is nothing that's happened in physics that really dispenses us from the idea of causality. I mean, people argue about it because that sounds because that sounds cool. You know, occasionally you will certainly find people who will claim that you know we're we're, we're transcending causality. We don't you know we don't need that anymore. I, yeah. I've, I've never seen I've never seen when, when you read the actual text following it. I've never seen that to logically follow. It's that salesmanship because we're addicted to novelty. And, you know, and we haven't, it's not just us moderns who are addicted to novelty, but we, you know, it's, it's definitely something that we, we, we put right out in front. Oh, we can throw away everything we ever thought about, you know, being true. <laughs> I don't think that's right. happened for causality. And as long as, as long as that doesn't happen for causality, there's always going to be the question, well, why are things this way? I mean, even if you subscribe to a hardcore, you know, multiverse, you know, interpretation, and we'll talk, like I said, that book by Stephen Barr, that's a fantastic book. And if you haven't picked up, that's an excellent book um, to, that, that will, you know, flesh this out, especially the first two-thirds of it or so, I think, really do an excellent job of fleshing out why, you know, as a matter of fact. He's very, I think he's, I find him kind of Chestertonian in the sense really? that, um, I, you know, my reading of Chesterton, Chesterton wasn't exactly someone who was going to go out and logically prove, you know, demonstrate his point, but he would, what, what he was doing, or at least what I see him as doing, is that he would take your, you know, unquestioned assumptions, you know, the, the unquestioned assumptions of the secular culture he was already living in, and, and just, you know, rip the curtain back and then say, you know what, does that really make any sense at all? Why wouldn't it be this way instead? And then you just, you know, I'm just left scratching, rubbing my chin. Maybe it is actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> why? Why does? Why? Why would you assume that that's an implication of that? Um, and yeah. so Stephen Bard, you know, I think does that in the in the realm of physics. Um, that why would you assume that? You know, because for example, you know, suppose so. So to get back to the question of, um, you know, the anthropic coincidences that we have so many aspects of physics, you know, in particular. Um, the cosmological constant, um, but a whole bunch of other things as well, have to be in a pretty tight band of what you know what what all these basic constants of physics are uh, in order for the universe to exist, for it to last long enough for life to come to be and to evolve into us, and that that you know, as far as we know, those numbers could be set at random. So why do we yeah. live in a you know, why is the universe such that, you know, human beings can even live in it? And so one argument around that, you know, to try to get around that is that, well, there's an, an unbelievably huge, if not absolutely limitless, infinite. I try to avoid the word infinite. I think it gets overused. Um, there's a, a limitless number of universes. And so, well, they're just and they're just all spread across this probability map. And so, of course, there's one, and of course, we'd be around to see the one where human beings could come to exist, where intelligent life could come to exist. So, you know, that's that's sort of a an anthropic principle. Um, you know, I'm not given the terminology precisely right now, but so that's that's an argument about that. But then you can just, but you can always take a step further back. Well, who or what set up the system so that you know? universes spring up across this whole probabilistic map. I mean, that doesn't explain itself either. Uh, well. 
you know, who, who or what is overseeing this enormous system. And all you're doing from, you know, pr the perspective of a person of faith, you know, as long as you're not, as long as you're not wedded, you know, you're not welded to excess intellectual baggage in your, you know, interpretation of things. I mean, you could, we could live in that, you know, universe system is what we'd now be talking about. And every element of Catholic dogma could survive unscathed. I am, I am positive. I have, you know, I, I think we could lay them all out and see, all right, well, what would that mean? And most of them would, it, it wouldn't even be relevant. It wouldn't even matter. And the only, the only problem is, is that you have a picture and your picture contains all of this extra intellectual content and this doesn't sound the same. So you freak out. Right. I think that's a lot of what happens. I think that's how a lot of this idea that science and religion are opposed to each other has come about. It's just that people had, I mean, and that to go back to Chesterton, Chesterton had a great uh, line about it. Um, the, the conflict between science and religion being this stuffy Victorian business between basically Protestants who had, you know, their own private reading of the Bible and they had added all, and and they talking themselves into believing this was just what was clearly there in the Bible. They'd added all of this intellectual baggage to it. And then you have very, you know, those arrogant, you know, 18th century people who was, I was talking to my friend this weekend about, I, I forget whether it was, um, you know, Diderot perhaps, uh, some, somebody, some, I think some French figure of the 18th century commenting that, well, you shouldn't believe in miracles because, you know, we know what the laws of physics are, and there's no way that you should trust, you know, some individual witness uh, over, you know, our knowledge of the laws of physics, which is a riot, just an absolutely comically, obscenely stupid statement for someone, you know, from our perspective, for someone in the 18th century to be that phenomenally arrogant to think that they knew what the laws of physics were. They didn't. <laughs> they had the beginning. They had the idea that there were laws of physics that could be expressed mathematically, and that's a non-negligible, you know, advance. But, oh, dear God, that was a stupid thing to say. <laughs> uh, well, through all ages, uh, humans have that tendency to say phenomenally stupid things and draw oh, phenomenally stupid conclusions. <laughs> I call it the bureaucratic mindset that, well, clearly we know yeah. enough. Whatever we don't know must be the small, marginal thing that's not worth worrying about. We know everything there is. Really, we know everything there is to know. So let's start making rules, and let's fossilize the rules. As you know, it, it's yeah, that's out. But yeah, <laughs> religion not exactly you know the, the that case. And so many you know the people who are really hardcore. Oh, science and religion are completely false. Those are a lot of those people are actually biologists rather than physicists. I mean, there's no shortage of atheistic physicists. Um, you know, right. Stephen. I think was one, um, you know, I've, I've read this book by, I forget what his name, uh, Krauss, I believe is his last name, a universe from nothing. Um, not a very, <laughs> a book that convinced me more that he had, you know, problems with his relationship with his father than it, does, it did any convincing of me that, you know, the, the universe exists without a creator. Um, right. But yeah, so the, I mean, those people are out there, but you know, the people who are really hardcore, you know, militantly, you know, atheistic seem to be biologists. In my, you know, very, you know, random walk through the scientific community, most of us geologists are kind of agnostic. And, you know, the contemplating how much bigger and older the Earth is than us, 
Um, I think a lot of geologists, I get the impression that kind of scratches their itch for the transcendent. Right. Um, just kind of go on. The nice thing about us is we're more easygoing than biologists and chemists are. Um, so we don't <laughs> tend to get into that, you know, massive, uh, you know, complex of needing to beat down people with religious convictions. And I certainly know religious geologists, too. Um, I know enough. Right. But, but, but biologists, I mean, that seems to be... Because, you know, if you read, like, for example, Steven Pinker, uh, The Blank Slate, you know, he goes off into this, you know, I mean, he talks about evolutionary psychology and, and, and evolutionary sort of neuroscience. You know, why do we have these things? And it's just, it's a, that's also a little comical in the sense that you can throw kind of a ridiculous hypothesis up against the wall, and apparently people will just nod and, you know, not agreement because you invoke the divine name of evolution. Right. You know, it can, it can work this miracle. Um, yeah. So that, and that, that takes their place because they live in, because biologists, unfortunately, live in this, in this constricted environment. Physicists, I mean, the, you know, the subject matter of physics is every bloody thing. Yeah. And that's a, that's a wider perspective. That's a literally, and conceptually wider perspective. Um, biologists can live in a tight, constrained little bubble, and their bubble is overseen by the god evolution, and that's all they need. That's all they Very need to deal with all of the matter. Right. Uh, well, I, I, I like your points about uh, different scientific mind frames. I like your point about the bureaucratic mind frame. And there was one other thing that I wanted to mention from last episode that uh, uh, caught my attention, and that was your reference uh, to the Shades of Grey. Uh, of course, not to be confused with the uh, the books uh, uh, using that uh, phraseology. Uh, quite a, quite a different field of pursuit. Yes, but you were hopeful. You were hopeful that we're not trapped in a world of complete randomness where everything is a shade of grey. Uh, you pointed out that things aren't completely random because nowadays we can actually measure the differences between shades of gray. Thanks to uh, computers and even Photoshop, etc., We can measure whether changing shades are basically heading toward the light or heading toward darkness. So that's got to be a hopeful thing for someone who's looking for some constants by which to measure moral progress as well as scientific progress. Am I right? Well, well it's, it's interesting to read your, um, to, to read that, you know, things aren't completely random. Is that what, is that what the, the saying shades of gray? This is, you know, again, where I'm sort of showing my, uh, you know, my overly literalistic, if not, you know, borderline autistic tendencies. Um, <laughs> you know, well, of course you can talk about shades of gray, and they go, you know, they go all the way toward white on one end and, you know, dark on and black on the other. Uh, wait, <laughs> I guess that's maybe not what people mean by that metaphor. Um, well, that's all right. I understood it. <laughs> I, I guess that's, you know, I, I, I guess I would not even want to use that. You know, you know, that's the thing. I guess I've never really gotten traction with that metaphor, really understood what it, what it's, what it's conventionally meant to mean out in the. Uh, if there even is a single uh, single dominant strand of meaning that it has out in, out in the wild. But I think you're correctly pointing out that uh, that is a tendency in the 
modern moral mind frame uh, to think of things as shades of gray and uh, that uh, everybody has their own truth and so everybody has their own morality and uh, black there and white kind of thinking is not fruitful, right? Right. The idea that, you know, that no matter what, so this is, yeah, that the things are really, you know, completely relative and no matter what you could find, you know, you whatever sexual behavior, for example, to take a random example, you know, you can find right. some culture or you could construct some culture where <clears throat> obviously that would be, you know, that, that, that would be perfectly morally acceptable, if not, you know, almost morally mandatory, you know, the, the, the things... Well, and yeah, and that's and that's an ironic thing to come back to Steven Pinker. The point that you know he actually spends a lot of time demolishing um, secularism in the sense that we do come with a program. <laughs> we come with, yeah. um, and that's the thing. You know, so so the whole you know the the church's you know the philosophical tradition that the church you know latched onto. Well, I mean, of course, Judaism had it to start with. Um, that there is a moral law. There is a natural law. If you treat people in a certain way, they're going to respond in a certain way, statistically speaking, at least. Um, right. And the question is: the question is, do we do we already know everything we need to know about that moral law? You know, by the time we got to Thomas Aquinas, did we have it all spelled out? I mean, I think I think there are a lot of people from a religious mindset who think that's the case. Basically, yeah, we know everything we need to know. Um, yeah. I don't believe that. I don't believe we know everything that there is to know. I don't believe we know everything that there is, you know, that's useful to, to figure out about how to behave morally. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount of advance that we could continue to, but, but yeah, we do have principles and I don't think those principles are going anywhere. I don't think it will, it's, I don't think it is or will ever actually be, you know, I, you know, moral to, you know, for fornication, for there to be sex outside of a, you know, a committed relationship around, you know, that's, that's at least, well, I mean, that that's open to bearing children, even if the, you know, practical, you know, situation is, you know, they're probably not going to, um, if right. two, people, two people who are 55 get married, for example. Right. Um, that's, but there's still an operative principle under there that, that that's required, you know, but that's mandatory, that there is actually, that people work better in that situation. Not to say that, you know, many, many people can't point to their lives and say, well, I've gotten by well enough. It all depends on your definition of what's well enough. Can you function? Can you do other moral things despite the fact that you, you know, you've discarded that principle? Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that it isn't actually a, a valuable principle that if you'd added that to the rest of it, you still would have lived a better life. Yes. Yeah. All right. So if we're uh, basically looking at uh, a world of uh, physics and metaphysics where we can accept both the big changes that we're discovering and some stabilizing constants, uh, what are we saying then about the chances for uh, God to continue to uh, play a role, or or perhaps our receptivity to the Holy Spirit more accurately plays uh, 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 pronounced. Um, uh, how are we how are we seeing that as a possibility for change? And uh, does it recall um, the uh, Einsteinian phrase that God does not play dice with the universe? So there, we really are in a in that fundamentally 
stable circumstance. That's an interesting thing. I mean, that's, you know, so, so Einstein expressed a, you know, of course he wasn't the only one to feel this way, that, you know, the quantum physics, and this is something that Stephen Barr gets into at length, um, the quantum physics at least seems to involve the reality that at, you know, the, the laws of physics are probabilistic. I mean, you can say that period full stop. However, at the macroscopic scale, that turns into, you know, the probabilities are, you know, quadrillions, quintillions, sextillions, nonillions to one, but anything other than, you know, the laws of Newtonian mechanics, you know, other than exactly that, will, you know, that, that things will, you know, the uncertainty will be on the level of you know, individual atoms. Yeah. And, you know, so, and if a baseball comes, you know, to the catcher's mitt off target by five atoms widths, you know, basically that's deterministic for our purposes. Um, right. At the, uh, at, the, at the scale of individual atoms and subatomic particles, it's probabilities. If you have an electron confined within a five-volt, you know, wall, you know, ten angstroms wide, you know, the electron will tunnel out of that wall a certain percentage of the time. It's it's probabilistic. So, yeah. so that's but those are still rules and those are still laws. The question is, yeah. are you comfortable with that? Now, Einstein was obviously not comfortable with that, and so you know his ideas is called the hidden variables, or you know one his idea is one of the family of ideas called the hidden variables idea, which is that we don't know enough. We're prevented because we have to whack particles with other particles in order to get you know, in, in order to observe them, and and so that's what is bring you know that's what is the causality behind the the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is that we have to whack an electron or a photon with another electron or a photon or something in order to observe it, and that yeah. you know that that means that that you know that phenomenon you know we we don't have perfect control over the particle that we're sending at it. Obviously, we don't even know until we've done it what and where and how fast and all the other th aspects of the particle we're trying to monitor. And therefore, you know, there's just intrinsic uncertainty we can't reduce below a certain level. The hidden variable yeah. idea is, is in, a sense, in essence to say, but nevertheless, below that level where we can observe it at least directly, maybe, maybe if we work hard enough someday we'll find a way to, to observe the hidden variables, maybe not, maybe they'll always remain conceptual. But even then, they may have mathematical consequences that allow us to distinguish something about how the hidden variables work, and that and that the universe is really at that lower level deterministic. There are people who believe this. Um, there are people right. who you know are I mean you know they have, they can be driven to it by all sorts of intellectual and aesthetic concerns. They think the universe would be more beautiful that way. It may or may right. not. It may or may not be true. Um, there and there is a lot of work that's been done that's been putting that's been put a lot of, and a lot of the work has put constraints on. Well, you can't have this kind of hidden variable, and you can't have that kind of hidden variable. It's actually not going to work. So it's, I mean, it's a little uh, silly to read the tea leaves about things like that. Like, but you know, the the trend seems to be, you know, if you're if you're taking a poll. You know, the poll results would probably say, yeah, hidden variable theory, not, you know, physicists don't, you know, don't feel like it's making progress. It doesn't seem to be the way forward. Yeah. Um, 
But that's, you know, so that's, that, you know, but you can look at, so the Copenhagen interpretation, the more or less standard, you know, orthodox interpretation, which, of course, there are orthodox interpretations everywhere, whether people admit them or not, um, uh-huh. is, that, is that the uncertainty is real, that the things really are probabilistic. And so, yeah. so if you do that, then, of course, you know, you get into, um, and, and Arthur Compton uh, was, was of that, you know, opinion. Um, he was, he was, he was, you know, more or less in that school of thought. And, you know, again, down, down to the present day, that's sort of the dominant school of thought. Um, it makes a lot of things make sense in your, a lot of very strange things make sense in your experimental, you know, in the interpretation of uh, quantum physics experiments. So that, first of all, you know, from the perspective of religion, you know, gives you, as I said, you know, this enormous hole through which non-physical things can affect the physical because there are just probability maps and you could distort the probability map and, you know, get the result, you know, your soul can get the result that it wants, so to speak, um, and lead your body off in a different direction. You know, what are we going to say to gainsay that? Those were all possible, those were all possible outcomes. Uh, so, you know, no, no law of physics has now been violated, and yet there's room for your soul to influence things, or yes. God to influence things, without actually breaking his laws of physics, which understandably, since he went to all this trouble to set them up, um, to me it seems, you know, pretty understandable that he doesn't spend all his time working miracles that actually break them. Right, he right manipulates coincidence more often than he works, you know, outright miracles. You know, if you define miracle in the sense that a law of physics actually has to be broken, uh, which is by yeah. no means necessary, I would think, to the definition of miracle. And then, so in a sense, if miracles are the uh, miracles are the exception that proves the rule. In a way, yeah, could be. If, yeah. if, there, if, there, if there even are that kind of miracle. If, in fact, you know, everything from, you know, the, 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 the um, the apparition of the sun at Fatima to, you know, whatever, you know, your Eucharistic uh, miracle of choice to, uh, you know, to, to whatever cure at Lourdes, you know, if in fact those aren't simply just, you know, pushing probabilities out to some very, very, very unlikely uh, scenario. But, but it happened to happen that time. I don't know. Right. I don't think anyone can do that. You can back calculate and see whether that works or not at this at our stage of not at our level of knowledge. Um, yeah, yeah. So this, in my mind, this brings us to a question. You know, the the question of are we living in the best of all possible universes? Mm-hmm. Um, and let me explain why I think that's relevant, or at least let me attempt to explain how I think that's relevant. Um, so if you're in a deterministic universe. You know, it could only it could only happen one way, and people look at you know the world that we have and all the messiness and waste and cruelty and you know whatever whatever else bothers you in particular about the way the world is. And and you ask you know if if God is all good you know if if God is goodness itself and is in complete control of everything, how could we possibly have a universe with all of this stuff in it? Um, and the question is, you know, any universe, you know, my, my response over the years, you know, quietly in the back of my mind has been, you know, any universe in which people are allowed to, you know, in, in which there are beings that can freely choose good over evil 
is one of the best possible universes. And in a way, if, if, if the universe is probabilistic, it's almost like the universe has its own free will, so to speak, and in a very, in a very loose I, Right. So Dante puts, or at least you know, speaks of the figure of Dame Fortune that the medievals you know, sort of spoke of, at least metaphorically, as a part of creation. And that yeah. you know, there may almost literally be a Dame Fortune spinning her wheel you know, at the subatomic level, pushing things in one direction or another causing, you know, so causing things, you know, if you put a uh, rock under stress, you don't know exactly where it's going to break, and at some level it's probably a quantum phenomenon of this atom has put itself just so far out of uh, its equilibrium position in the crystal that this is where the crack nucleates and this is where the rock breaks. That there's a microscopic control on a macroscopic event. Uh, That's Dame Fortune spinning her wheel. And that, I mean, of course, the other thing is that God is there at the end collecting all of these, you know, all of our souls at the end and, you know, and judging us with complete, you know, complete justice and complete sympathy, um, knowing exactly what we've been through, what this, you know, random universe has put us through and what our responses to that then were. That yeah. any universe that happens is one of the best possible universes. But it does, I mean, it, it absolutely depends, you know, just like St. Paul said. If, if Christ is not raised, then you're not raised, and your faith is vain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's, there's not, we, it, it sure doesn't look like there's justice, you know, there's, there's absolute justice just in terms of how human lives come out in this world. Right. We, we have oh. to explain that, you know. I think there's a tendency for people to try to, some people, to try to be apologetic and try to, you know, believe, I mean, and that's happened, you know, ever since, you know, the Old Testament. You know, there are passages that sound like that in the Old Testament. You don't have to interpret them that way, but it certainly sounds like that. The person writing it might have thought that. And other people, you know, in other, in other uh, contexts. Yeah. But we have, we have, I think we have to accept that, you know. So, so, for example, did all of the people in Pharaoh's army that was, you know, chasing the Israelites... Were all of them such bad people that they deserved to be, you know, drowned at that point in time? No, probably not. I mean, I, I suspect probably not. Um, right. But but they did nevertheless die. You know, all the people, all the people, the children of Israel encountered and fought um, and killed on their way to the promised land. They too, you know, whether all of them were bad or not, um, they have their they have their compensation on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to me, it sounds like the probabilistic universe combined with that concept. I really like you, uh, uh, like the way you um, expanded on today that the idea of the, the important role of, of the observer. To me, that's a, that's a pretty hopeful view of the of the future uh, and of faith and of the combination of faith and reason, science and religion. Uh, uh, it's it's basically empowering to, to human beings, and and it's uh, it's a god that uh, god that wants to work through. Um, I was going to say evolving. That's not. Uh, let's avoid that word, huh? Uh, god wants to, <laughs> yeah. Uh, god, that, god that's wants that's to... a prominent yeah <laughs> non orthodox. You know, like oh, and God is evolving too, 
Right. Oh my well, I mean, uh-huh. that, goes, that goes back to the distinction between different forms of evolution, you know, earlier, right? That you know, if God, if it makes any sense at all to say that God is evolving, which really it doesn't. Um, no, that's right. Yeah. It's that God is maintaining all of these levels of complexity and showing them to the universe, so to speak, as the universe oh. becomes ready for it. Right, which is not too different from the uh, the pattern uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, where God showed Himself in uh, yeah. uh, in different uh, ways and uh, uh, in different degrees uh, as as uh, human beings became more capable of understanding them. Am I right? It's yeah, you could show you could, you could you could definitely draw that parallel. Yeah, very interesting. Well, uh, I think that's all the time we have. For this episode, there's so much yeah. more I want to go into, but that's the whole purpose of having more episodes. Right. Uh, I, I, I thank you very much for the clarifications that you, you gave to me, and it really is uh, truly an expanding uh, view that, uh, that, that I'm getting from this uh, series uh, in the podcast myself. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to kind of preview for the next episode or the the arc of the story that that uh, comes on from here. Well, you know, you 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 actually propose several more questions. Um, a lot of them dealing with evolution, and I mean that's such a hot button issue. And we, you know, this is a level which we could talk about it. Um, you know, there's there's some. I think there's more good stuff to be to be had there. Um, at some point, I'd like to talk a little bit about evolution, even in the context of geology, just because it, it provides another example that I can. I can give more of the details and, and show, you know, another aspect of what we could mean by the term evolution. Now we should be Very good. we should be careful, but we should also be enthusiastic about that term. And you know, kind of almost we could we could convert that term from being a stick that's used to beat religious people to being sort of an ambassador for us if we're careful. I like that. So you, we we can baptize that term. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rebaptize that term because I'm sure it was used in Very good. for Darwin. So. Very good. Uh, well, thank you as always, Paul. This is a great conversation. I, I enjoyed and we'll be uh, back to our listeners in the next episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Paul, for our conversation. It was great to talk to you, Bill. See you next time. Likewise. <laughs>